And the, the theory is that the U.S. uses force to keep this state of affairs in existence. And if they didn't use imperialistic force to force everyone to trade oil in dollars, then the value of the dollar would plummet and we'd be unable to maintain trade deficits without causing depreciation and inflation. And if the cool stuff hypothesis is true, if people want to save in dollars because the U.S. produces cool stuff that they want to buy and to be able to maintain their ability to buy even, you know, when their income drops or when the exchange rate drops, then oil is only one of the cool things that you can get with a dollar and loss of the ability to purchase oil and dollars from other countries would have only a small impact on the value of the dollar. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my three-part conversation with lawyer and independent economics researcher Jonathan Wilson on the reality of the petrodollar or reserve currency, focusing on his unique and easy-to-understand cool stuff hypothesis. Jonathan's article on the topic can be found on his website pmpecon.com, and a link can also be found in the show notes. The Cool Stuff Hypothesis is a realistic look at how and why a country's currency is desired, spent, and saved by people both in and out of the country. The playful phrase, Cool Stuff, was inspired by Stephanie Kelton and her 2020 book, The Deficit Myth, which takes 25 years of MMT academic scholarship and boils it down for a popular, non-academic audience. In part one, Jonathan summarized his hypothesis and today he continues that summary. We then connect the hypothesis to the ridiculous and hyperbolic theory of the petrodollar. In part three next week, we drastically change subjects. For the past nine months, Jonathan has assisted me in developing a full and free online course that's not directly MMT, but is critical for those who want to better understand it. It's based on the work of Asad Zaman, who is my guest in episodes 56 and 57, and is titled Historical Context for Real World Economics. The course is produced by Activist MMT and hosted by Bill Mitchell's MMT Ed and Isha Krishnaswamy's Historically. But for now, let's get right back to part two of my conversation with Jonathan Wilson. Enjoy. stuff, your cool stuff, needs to be met. But there is the additional factor, which I, which because we're not on the gold standard, I mean, I, I don't feel like I have this, uh, this is a very vague understanding, but without the gold standard, there is more of an incentive to create essentially conceptual products, which are, which you can create infinitely, which is, includes financialization, which includes gambling, which includes um, you know, financial products. 
So you can meet the demands for those dollars, which essentially they're not out to buy products. They're out. They're not out to buy actual physical goods or services. They're out to buy more money. They're out to buy more money. And since you have the flexibility of not being stuck to having to defend a gold stock that you can create and you have the flexibility to create that money to meet that those financial needs, those uh, gambling needs, essentially. Oh, it I feels, see. You're, it's okay. reasonably close. Oh, that is a completely different point than I was trying to make. It's a very smart point, though. I, that's insightful. I'll have to think about that. Uh, <laughs> wow, that was total but, accidental insightfulness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the point that I, w- I was making is that if there is a gold standard, um, it's a lot easier for the speculator, like the someone, someone who wants to gamble on a currency depreciating, it's a lot easier for them to track how likely it is that it'll depreciate because they're promising to, because the country that issues that currency is promising to convert it into one specific thing. Uh, and you can just say, you can just look at that once more. You have you know, a million pounds of gold and you put out, you know, $2 million worth of money converted, uh, so 2 million pounds worth of money claims on gold. Okay. Obviously I should speculate against you. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's like, if you know that they're, they're, they're converting into one thing, you can just look at how much of that one thing do they have? Okay. But if yeah. they're not promising to convert it into any specific thing and it's more of this abstract you know, claim on the goods and services of the country, it's a, it, it is a lot less reasonable for you to bet on a currency depreciation. Huh. Okay. And I yeah. think my, my point about financial instruments essentially is I don't, they, they obviously existed under the gold standard as well. Um, but I, it's just obviously, it's much more risky because of the potential default on the gold standard itself. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So when there's when there's no ability to have your peg broken, you can do a lot more things, and some of those things are going to be risky. Yeah. That, that's as much as I'm willing to say about that without without giving it a real think. Yeah. But let's I, go back I, to. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's go back to what you were saying about needing to produce enough stuff for your domestic consumption and for um, external consumption. So. Well, let's keep it like a real simple model. I think in the in the article I talk about Canada and Japan. So let's say that um, Canada has a trade deficit with Japan of a hundred Canadian dollars, and Japanese people they want to save, you know, twenty five percent of that and spend the rest. So let's say they want they want to spend seventy five Canadian dollars worth of stuff. So Canada needs to be able to make $75 worth of stuff for the Japanese people, plus however much their own people want to spend. Uh, so let's say they want to spend, you know, the Canadians want to spend $50 Canadian dollars on their own stuff. So if Canada has a hundred dollar trade deficit with Japan, the Japanese spend 75 of those dollars back into Canada, buying stuff from the Canadians the Canadians themselves want to spend $50 on stuff. 75 plus 50 is 125. So Canada as a country needs to be able to produce $125 worth of stuff. And if they can't, three things will happen. Either the um, Japanese won't be able to spend $75 and they'll get upset. They'll start selling Canadian dollars and that'll cause the exchange rate to depreciate or the Japanese will get all their stuff, but there won't be enough left over for the Canadian domestic citizens to buy. Uh, and that'll cause inflation or most likely it'll be a combination of both. You know, if Canada needs to make $125 worth of stuff to send to its own people and to the Japanese, but they can only make a hundred, most likely Japanese will get a little bit less, maybe they'll get 65, and the native Canadians will get a little bit less, maybe they'll get uh, 35 or something, in which case you'll have domestic inflation and 
currency depreciation on the domestic market because your ability to buy stuff with Canadian dollars has reduced. And mm-hmm. I, I like to think, and I'll have to talk to John Harvey about this. I like to think that this is not in conflict with his with his claim that it's not actual trade that determines currency depreciation. Uh, because I would say that it's not the actual trade, but it's the potential trade in in this situation, if that makes any sense. I actually just wrote down, I was going to ask you after you were done, of they all, they have to meet that $75 of, of spending. So the, so the Japanese choose to save 25 and spend 75, which means yeah. they're choosing to spend 75 now and 25 later. So clearly the U.S. has to somewhat consider that future spending and be able to prepare for the productivity necessary to meet that as well. Exactly. Yeah, there are there are expectations about future trade that um, are going to have you know major impacts on production and sale and uh, depreciation. So if, if you're you know a, a Japanese business person and you've saved twenty five Canadian dollars and you look and see that the Canadians, you know, their economy is shrinking. You know, they have not been keeping up with their ability to produce. There's been a drought and the Canadian timber forests are, you know, drying up and burning away and they, and they can't make the stuff they need to make. You are going to think about selling some of your Canadian dollars. But in this case, it was not the mere fact that Canada ran a trade deficit that caused you to sell your Canadian dollars. Uh, Cause that would be sort of the classical view that, you know, John Harvey explicitly says is not the major determinant. It is the deficit plus that future expectation, sometimes speculatively about their inability to convert those, uh, dollars into whatever the buyers are going to want. So I think there's there's that connection to trade, but there's also that speculative element sort of of looking into the future, considering how much you might need to save, considering what they're going to do and and partially considering what other people are going to do. He John Harvey talks a lot about sort of uh, uh, foreign currency speculators influencing each other's behavior. And that's I think that's still, you know, definitely sort of um, part of what you might see, because if you, you know, if you're a Japanese businessman who wants to buy Canadian timber or whatever, and you see that their forests have all burnt to the ground, you're going to start selling your Canadian dollars. And then your buddy is also going to start selling Canadian dollars because he sees what you're doing. So that, that possibility of sort of the group think is still there. And it, and it can be, it can end up being a lot, extending a lot further than the immediate consequences of trade. But I, I still think that the, uh, the connection to the production of real goods is there. Um, actually, uh, I learned this from John Harvey. Um, I have a great interview with John Harvey about this, by the way. Um, I interviewed John Harvey on, on exchange rate determination, and I spent three months preparing for it. I read his textbook. It is not easy. Um, and I actually did uh, several interviews in the in preparation for talking with John, and one of them happened to be with Sam uh, on the core assumptions of mainstream. Um, but what, something uh, – actually, just, just for listeners, I, it, it is not an introduction. It, it's kind of intended to listen to after you get an introduction from like his interview on MMT Podcast and so on. Um, but what I learned from him is that speculation creates its own reality. So – speculators have incentive to manipulate to make their speculation come true and in the age of the internet that is not too difficult you know instantaneous communication around the globe to the other side of the globe makes manipulation very easy um especially since those in power 
you know, I mean, you know, Fed announcements, for example, are significantly manipulation. They're intended to shape behavior and shaping behavior of uh, foreign trade, foreign traders is, is, is a significant part of that. Um, and actually kind of a tangent is, uh, is that the, that the age of the internet makes things impossibly fast and also not personal. John was telling me about how how you used to have to make a phone call to England to make a trade and talk to someone. So you would have to get to know that someone and obviously you would be kind to them. You know, if you're a complete jerk, they're not going to fill your trade and, you know, so you'd be kind to this person. You will think about this person. You will realize this person exists. But now with the internet, that's gone because it's so impossibly fast. You're doing thousands of transactions, millions of transactions in a second, and there's no person on the other end of that. It's just another computer. So the damage of your speculation is not as in your mind because you don't have the person on the other side. You know, they don't exist to you. So they're obviously their suffering doesn't exist to you. So that's how kind of how speculation gets increased as well. Um, oh, yeah. So I, I addressed your point. Yeah. I addressed your point and then I went significantly farther. So hopefully you can bring us back in. Oh, sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that speculation is, you know, obviously like a huge problem, particularly with developing countries. The The claim that I'm trying to make in the article that I probably should make this more explicit and you know, luckily, we are recording this in the past. So by the time the, <laughs> the, the episode comes out, it will be made more explicit. Um, <laughs> the claim that I make in the article is that there's a limit to this speculation. You know, so if you are trying to get everyone to sell your uh, your your Turkish lira, you know, because you have bet against the Turkish lira. You'll be able to do that up to a point, and that point is whether or not people have people outside of Turkey have liabilities denominated in Turkish lira, and that might be because they have, you know, a relationship with a supplier of Turkish goods, like a long-term relationship, like a contract to, you know, Turkey exports cars. Um, you know, like maybe you've, you said, all right, I'm going to buy 100 cars from Turkey every year and I'm going to pay you in Turkish lira. If you have that relationship, that sort of trade relationship, then even if other people are selling their Turkish lira, you can't sell yours because you will need it to pay for those cars. Um, so that's sort of the the hard stop on on the speculation, which is why, you know, people who tried to you know, speculate against uh, the Japanese yen, keep losing. Hmm. You know, people say, oh, well, Japan has all this debt. Pretty soon they'll have hyperinflation. I'm going to bet against the yen. And they lose every single time because it'd be difficult to convince everyone in the world to sell their yen because they need yen to buy stuff from Japanese people because hmm. Japan makes so much cool stuff. Uh does that make sense? Yeah, the deficit myth is essentially manipulation, really. Yeah. It's essentially the people in power manipulating the general public to act foolishly, like the widowmaker trade, which I don't know much about, but I know generally is like betting against the debt of Japan. And then they all got crushed because they believe the deficit myth. So the deficit myth itself, deficit myth itself, scarcity myth, is essentially manipulation to keep those on top on top. Yeah, like they they want you to believe that the value of the Japanese yen is simply because some people have it and and some people don't. And the more people who have it, the less valuable it is, but it's it's more complicated than that. It's why do they have it? What do they plan on doing with it? Where are they going to send it in exchange for what? under what terms there's this deep sort of bargaining power analysis that I think you have to do that just is not present in a lot of conversations about the economy. I think when you say the dollar is going to plummet or the yen is going to plummet in reality, what you're saying is that, the companies in the United States will not be able to produce 
the good things that they currently produce. Essentially, you're saying if the dollar plummets, you're essentially saying these companies are going to plummet. You know, yeah, it doesn't make sense to say the dollar is going to plummet because you're basically making a statement on the entire U.S. economy, every company in the U.S. economy, which is pretty strong on not great great foundations, you know, fossil fuels and all that stuff. But at the moment, the United States economy is quite strong. The companies in the United States are quite strong. So to say the dollar is going to plummet is basically betting on every against every single company in the United States as a collective, and that seems pretty foolish to me. Exactly, because there are like material realities of you know their ability to, pr- to produce stuff that people are going to want to buy, and, and honestly, and I- ironically, you know the only thing that could really threaten that is the one thing that our government doesn't seem to want to prevent, uh, which is climate change. You know, if we have you know, crazy, uh, you know, a, a tsunami that, you know, wipes out half of the, of the West coast because we, you know, continue to pump all this carbon in, into the air, then yeah, then we actually won't be able to make stuff and people won't want dollars. So it's, it's crazy to me that, that we haven't, uh, put this at the forefront of our, of our economic discussions. I agree that, that, you know, it, Big changes are common whether we like it or not. Yeah, I think the to tie it back, like there are material circumstances that could lead to a massive undermining of the U.S. economy, but those are going to be a lot more important than any financial circumstances. Like it's sure. not about the trade deficit or the debt; it's about you know, are we going to have a planet? Sure, it's the causation is the causation is backwards. Yeah. Anyway, so to briefly back up, yeah, there's this, there's this, we talked about a cascade of liabilities sort of strengthening the US dollar. And for people to say that the dollar is going to collapse, they are uh, ignoring one crucial part of that, of the cascade, which is the liabilities of companies who produce things. The, the liabilities that they have in dollars and the fact that they will demand them. Anyways, we haven't actually talked about the petrodollar yet. Um, right. So so that was another question of mine is, so this all is your kind of alternative theory to the petrodollar. How does it connect to the petrodollar? So the petrodollar came about as a result of, um, so like a series of international treaties and and agreements decades ago where we decided, okay, we're going to price oil in dollars. You know, anytime you buy oil from anyone, whether it's in, you know, Nigeria or Saudi Arabia, you're going to pay in, in dollars as opposed to Nigerian. I actually don't remember what their currency is called. Uh, and then Saudi Arabia has the, I want to say the dinar possibly, unless that's another country. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll be corrected on, on Twitter at some point. Um, and the, the theory is that the U.S. uses force to keep this state of affairs in existence. And if they didn't use imperialistic force to force everyone to trade oil in dollars, then the value of the dollar would plummet and we'd be unable to maintain trade deficits without causing depreciation and inflation. And if the cool stuff hypothesis is true, if people want to save in dollars because the U S produces cool stuff that they want to buy and to be able to maintain their ability to buy, even, you know, when their income drops or when the exchange rate drops, then Oil is only one of the cool things that you can get with a dollar. And Mm. loss Mm. of the ability to purchase oil in dollars from other countries would have only a small impact on the value of the dollar. So in the article, I I give a list and I'll I'll go through it here because it's quick. So we already talked about aircraft and spacecraft. The other things that the U.S. is that top exporter of and the net exporter of is 
medical instruments, combustion engines, chemical products, refined petroleum, and arms and ammunitions. And they're not the top exporter, but they're among the top exporter of integrated circuits and unpackaged medicaments, which is hmm. essentially like the like the wholesale version of certain pharmaceutical drugs. And um, we, if you if you didn't have to spy Saudi Arabian oil in dollars, it would still be the case that you would need dollars to buy all those things we talked about. You know, guns, chemical products, medical instruments, integrated circuits, hmm. so on and so forth. Which means that at best, the complete obliteration of the petrodollar system would like have a small impact of like maybe you know one or two percent on the exchange rate because you have all these other reasons to save in U.S. dollars. Hmm. And interestingly enough, the U.S. is the largest exporter of refined petroleum. So there's crude, there's you know there's crude petroleum and there's refined petroleum, and a lot of countries produce crude. A, many fewer countries produce good refined petroleum, and U.S. is the U.S. is the top exporter of refined petroleum. Which means that even if you couldn't buy crude petroleum from you know Venezuela in dollars, you could still buy refined petroleum from the US in dollars, which is what you really want in order to make, you know, uh, plastics and gasoline and that sort of stuff. Hmm. And that brings up Fadl's work of they take in crude and they send out refined petroleum. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so basically what I'm saying is that the US would, would be fine. So the second part of the of the petrodollar story that if we didn't enforce this it would fall apart, I think is, is complete bunk. The first part might still very well be true. The first part is that the U.S. uses imperialistic force to create this state of affairs. Because I, I think they, there might be some people who benefit financially from the petrodollar system. And there might be other people who simply believe the second part of the petrodollar story. Like they think, oh, we need to protect the petrodollar system so the dollar will have value so let's you know kill people to make sure that it stays in place um and nathan tankis wrote an article about this a little while back and he he talks about the second half of of the petrodollar story and and like me he comes to the conclusion like oh no the oil and gasoline you know it's only a small part of trade he doesn't get into the other things that U.S. produces, but you know he concludes that it would be a, a, a negligible impact. I don't necessarily think they know that. Um, they, meaning George Bush, I think he might honestly believe that you know it would be the end of the U.S. because I think there are people whispering in his ear telling him, "Oh no, no, you got to make sure that uh, you know Iraq continues to sell oil in dollars and not euros, and, and the same for Libya and all these places because mm-hmm. maybe they benefit from it, you know." Maybe sure. they're that, that's what may, they define the U.S. as us. Yeah, the oligarchs. Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll. When they say we, you know, they mean themselves. Uh, sure. Yeah, you know, maybe they make a lot of money from people converting their their money into dollars, or maybe they just want to be able to surveil and and see what people are doing, which is part of what happens if you're using. Uh, banks that are connected to the Federal Reserve System to make these payments. It's a lot easier to keep keep tabs on everything. Yeah, so d- despite what they believe, what they they actually believe, I, I don't think the loss of the petrodollar would have huge negative impacts on our ability to maintain trade deficits because we make all this stuff. And we, and we sort of talked about this in the first part of the episode. You know, if you couldn't buy any of that stuff from the U.S., you'd have to go someplace else. And if everyone went someplace else, those prices would increase. And and eventually, you get to the point where, like, okay, well, now I feel as if, as if I have no economic choice but to buy these things from 
from the U.S. and you need dollars to do that. So you would so you would uh, sell whatever your local currency is for dollars so you can buy, you know, the spacecraft, the the integrated circuits, the medical instruments that the U.S. produces more of than most other places. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, I have several more questions. Um, yeah, let me just let me just say one more thing before I get to your questions. Um, and the purpose that I of writing the article was not to be like, oh wow, the U.S. is so great. The purpose for me was to get people to think about this cascade of liabilities and payments and apply it to other countries. You know, in pursuit of. Um, sort of again, getting them to think about like what does sustainable development look like? Because uh, and we're going to tie this back to Fadal Kaboob's work, which is that, you know, if you're, if you're exporting low value content, you know, what I would call uncool stuff, stuff that anyone can make. <laughs> um, and there's no desire to save in that country's currency. So let's say you are, let's say you're Pakistan, you know, to give a, a quick preview of what we're going to talk about <laughs> a very, later. A very subtle, uh, what do you call it in movies when you drop a, a, an unknown hint? Anyway, uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> a very yeah, subtle foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's say you're, you're, you're Pakistan and you are producing um, like mass-produced sort of, you know, clothes and toys and, and that sort of stuff. People aren't necessarily going to want to save in Pakistani currency because they can get that from pretty much any place. They can get that from Indonesia. They can get it from China. So if you put out a bunch of money, if you run a trade deficit as Pakistan, people are going to, they're going to take that, that money and they say, okay, well, I don't want to hold on to it. So I'm going to, you know, sell it or I'm going to spend it. And that is either going to put, downward pressure on the value of uh, Pakistani currency or upward pressure on the uh, domestic prices within Pakistan. But if, if Pakistan really develops, you know, as uh, Fidel likes to say, into high value added manufacturing goods and they start making, um, let's see, what's something that's like really difficult to make, like, like x-ray equipment and they become... Yeah, yeah. You say transporters, like like Star Trek transporters, and uh, yeah, and uh, and uh, the thing that makes food for Cap- Captain Kirk, Captain. Uh, okay. Captain, uh, yeah. Uh, oh gosh. The, the What's it called? One. The what is the thing called? Like the materializer? Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah. I, I don't remember the name, but you know, Earl Grey Tea Hot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's say they they make the transporters. Uh, Picard, Picard. And they're and they're the only person, the only the only country in. Southwest Asia that's capable of doing that. If they ex- if they run a trade deficit, meaning that they're putting out more Pakistani money than they're taking back, then when you get that Pakistani money, you know you're going to want to hold on to it because you don't because you want to be able to buy the transporter. You want to be able to buy you know the the cool stuff that they're putting out. And what this means for um, development is that what you are able to manufacture is just as important as the the sheer volume because as your stuff becomes more advanced you actually don't need to export as much because more advanced your stuff is the more people will want to save onto your currency and if they're saving it that means they're not spending it which mm. means, no, that, which means now, yeah, they're not they're spending preparing it now. to spend it later. Yeah, yeah. They might be, they might be preparing to spend it later, or they might just be hoarding it because they know other people want it for whatever reason. Because because we say that you know saving now is spending later, but for a lot of like rich people, that's not necessarily the case. They just want to amass as much as possible, and they're and they're never going to try to spend it all. Hmm. I mean, I, I see your point, but it's it's really that. I mean, that is the point: is to buffer for Armageddon, so that you can you'll always have something to 
protect yourself, which is essentially potential purchasing. That's right. That's right. I mean, so yeah, you, you do it, but I guess like what I'm saying is the more, the cooler the stuff that the country puts out, the bigger people's buffer is going to want to be. Right. Yeah. And that, and that allows you a lot of sort of leeway. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. So yeah, don't think about just the United States with this Think about every country and what they can be doing and, and versus what they're actually doing. I, uh, you know, just last night I you know, started a, a, a brief Twitter conversation with, with an economist who specializes in uh, sort of industrial policy economics. And, you know, one of the things he says is like, oh, you know, countries need to focus on things that are going to bring in like good export revenue. And like one of the things that he mentioned, you know, was like tourism and, and call centers. And from the MMT perspective, you know, it doesn't make sense to invest in call centers as a as an industry for your country because that's so easily fungible. You know, anyone can do that anywhere. All, all you have to do is be able to, you know, teach the people in your country English or German or French, and you can be you know, a hub for call centers. And if you and if you start to want, you know, better conditions better pay for your people and you start demanding higher wages the people who own the cal center you know which are going to be people outside of that country outside of Pakistan, it's going to be american it's going to be apple it's going to be google they'll say oh well you don't want to work for a you know two dollars a day at this at this call center well uh the people in indonesia have no problem doing it so the more the more time you spend on this sort of quick cash, the less like there's a big opportunity cost between doing that and building up a sustainable sort of high value economy that's going to be able to like bargain for good conditions and also make people want to save your currency, which will allow you to spend it on things that you need, on more capital goods. You know, so if you're Pakistan and you want to build uh, like a, I'm trying to think what's something very difficult, like, like a, a factory that makes semiconductors, you know, there's a lot of like really intricate equipment that you have to be able to purchase that you can probably only purchase from like Japan, Korea, Germany, the U S. And if you spend, you know, like a, a trillion Pakistani rupees, so you can buy, you know, this really awesome semiconductor equipment. People who have those rupees, you know, outside of Pakistan, or they're going to say, oh, well, I don't really need this because I can't really buy anything with it, you know, other than paying people who work in a call center. So I'm just going to sell it or I'm going to, you know, quickly spend it on Pakistani goods causing either domestic inflation or uh, depreciation. But if Pakistan has already invested in more high value content, you know, you know, instead of sending people to work in call centers, you are, you know, working on sustainable agriculture, you're working on sort of health and medicine and that sort of thing. You know, when people get the, the uh, Pakistani rupees, they'll say, okay, I'm, I'm going to hold on to this for a little bit because Pakistan has already improved the quality of goods I might be able to buy with it. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, it's okay. part of this process of like slowly sort of building up your capacity. It can't happen all at once, but you have to be smart about it. And you have and to resist you, coercion. You have to resist coercion, which is the toughest part. And oh, that, that's, it's a whole other topic that I want to, I want to get into about sort of, interest rates and their effect on the cascade of liabilities. But I, I don't know if we'll have time or we can come back to it uh, if after you mm. ask your questions. Well, okay. Uh, well, first of all, on a very, the very important correction, not transporter, teleporter. Okay. The teleporter. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. No, I have several questions um, and we'll try and keep this 20 minutes so that we can get to the course. So that essentially be part three. Um, yeah. So, so, 
you know, you said this is a this is basically this is a description like MMT. This is a description. It's not necessarily a good thing, but this is what it is. So like the yeah. fact that we make climb the fact that we make airplane parts in the U.S. and we make the best ones and you know no it's really cool stuff because nobody else does it at least as well as or whatever. That is what it is, but it's also a terrible thing because of climate change. And it's also a terrible thing because it's misguided from our point of view. If we want to be able to adjust and make money as climate crisis starts to take hold, then we need to start considering products that are going to be needed at that time. And if we cling on to products that are needed, that are need to be phased out, you know, that's, that's a bad thing. So as you say, as you end your article, I'm pretty sure it ends this way that it's it's a description. This is a description of how it actually is. It does not necessarily mean it's a bad. It does not necessarily mean it's a good thing. And it's exactly the same pushback that you get from MMT. Oh well, we should spend endlessly. No, they could. That's the point. They could, always could have. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's a it's a description. Like the like the the dollar has strength because people need it to save. They need it to save so they can buy aircraft, spacecraft, medical instruments, chemical products, refined petroleum, arms, arms and ammunition, arms and ammunition, excuse me, uh, integrated circuits, unpackaged medicaments. But that is a bad thing, unfortunately, because most of the things that I mentioned, you know, planes, very bad for the environment, combustion engines, refined petroleum, obviously, arms and ammunition very bad that we are to the extent arms. that we do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. It's necessary to a small extent, but to the extent that we do is bad. Yeah. You know, a lot of conflicts around the world only exist because the U S sells so many arms. So yeah. it would be great if we focused, you know, all of our output on instead of planes, like what if the U S became the world's leading manufacturer of, um, of high speed trains. And if, mm. what if instead of refined petroleum, we, can, we became the world's leading manufacturer of solar panels? You know, those are both like very, still very complicated products that would, you know, give strength to the, to the dollar in a post climate world. But mm -hmm. we have to be smart and think, okay, we need to make these things for ourselves rather than just buying them from elsewhere, mm -hmm. which has been the case for the last several years. Uh, like there, there are some solar panels that are made in the U.S., but I, I don't anticipate us becoming the global leader in that. Right. I actually, I think it's probably true that almost every oligarch, every billionaire, is dependent on fossil fuels. Like fundamentally dependent on fossil fuels. I mean, Bill Gates's computers, which is substantially dependent on fossil fuels for the creation and for powering computers. I mean, that's much less, but clearly much more is Musk with Tesla's that is big time dependent on fossil fuels to, to manufacture and to dig up all these harsh chemicals and, and, uh, that's, and, and to generate electricity to charge, charge these cars. Um, Walmart, is the whole point of Walmart is to have a very large store that you can go and drive to a distance away and get whatever you need. That can't happen if we don't have cars. And and I'm pretty sure, and fossil fuel companies, obviously, military companies, not companies, military are obviously dependent on fossil fuels or the biggest user of fossil fuels, I understand it, the US military. So I think... Um, I, I lost my point, but but I think all oligarchs pretty much are really dependent on fossil fuels, which is another reason of why they're clinging onto it. And and I mentioned to you um, that that kind of suggests a contradiction anyway. If the U.S. dollar, if the U.S. economy is dependent on the petrodollar, then that gives us an impossible conundrum where we either have to choose between having a livable climate. And sticking with the petrodollar in order to save the U.S. economy or saving our ability to live on the planet and getting off of fossil fuels, which if the petrodollar theory is correct, will kill the U.S. economy by definition, by their, that, that theory. So, you know, 
I'm pretty sure that we can reject that false dichotomy. I'm pretty sure that this false dichotomy. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So that would be a great takeaway. Okay. Um, and can you connect this to outsourcing? Meaning the, the cool stuff hypothesis, like the U S outsources a lot. So the fact that the U S dollar is in, so is such in demand implies that we have a lot of cool stuff, a lot, a lot of unique things that the world wants to buy. And yet at the same time, we outsource a lot. So I wonder, I wonder how that fits in. And I'm thinking of two things. Number one, we do produce a lot, but it, it enriches the rich because our, our workers are overseas. A lot of them are overseas. And also potentially like iPhones, those things are constructed overseas and then we sell them as U.S. products. I, I my um, my inclination would be to, to talk about the, the second part of the explanation, which is that we we send out a lot of really complex parts for things that are assembled elsewhere. So I you you, you remember that I said the U.S. is the leading exporter of combustion engines. But they're not the leading exporter of cars, which means that other people are using our combustion engines to make cars that they're oh, selling back to us. That's kind of the reverse of iPhones, where pieces yeah. are made overseas. Okay. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, in the US is a net exporter of integrated circuits, but a net importer of phones and computers, which means that we're sending out a lot of integrated circuits, which is the complicated thing. And they're putting the thing together and sending it back to us, you know, at a, at a markup. If you're, if we're just looking at the relationship between, you know, integrated circuits and phones, you would see Americans spending, you know, billions and billions and billions on phones and, South Koreans or the Chinese more likely spending hundreds of millions on American integrated circuits. Hmm. And from a classical perspective, you look at that and say, oh, we're getting the raw end of the deal because we are um, sending out way more, way more money. We're paying so much more that obviously can't continue forever. Huh. But it, it can because they need the circuits the integrated circuits more than we need the phones. I know that that sounds crazy, but what, what I'm saying is that if we decided, if, if they decided, oh, you know what? We can choose other suppliers. They can't and, choose other creators of these unique products of phones. Exactly, exactly. If the Chinese said, oh, we're not going to make phones for you anymore, we'll say fine, the, the Mexicans will or the Canadians will or something. Or, or maybe, uh, and this would be, you know, a ideal scenario for me is we just pay our people to make them for ourselves, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. So, so uh, one brief statement and then one final question to close us out. My brief statement is that um, Warren made uh, an interesting point to me that you know, uh, Fadel's work is low value added content being sent out, exported. And then you like, for example, Venezuela exports crude oil and imports processed fuel. And that's a bad thing. But it's not a bad thing because it's low value for high value. That's not what makes it bad. What makes it bad is that they are coerced into doing it. The coercion is bad, not the low for high. Because he gave uh, Warren gave an example of, of uh Australia exporting coal and getting televisions in exchange. So that to me came across as that's low value for high value. And Warren said, you know, I, I reject that, that that's a bad thing and inherently a bad thing. And he didn't say the, so what I concluded from that, he didn't say this specifically is that Australia chooses to do that, or at least in his, I don't know if it's a pretend scenario or not, but in that scenario, Australia chooses to do that. And there's nothing wrong with choosing to send out low value and getting high value, like raw materials for highly processed stuff. If you are coerced into doing that, that's a bad thing. So the the it's not low to high is is bad. It's that coercion is bad. That's so that's a statement I wanted to make. Um, so my final question for you, 
is okay. So now we realize that the petrodollar, we understand that the petrodollar is kind of nonsense. It's just another cool stuff that is imposed on the world by the muscle of the US. But they have tons of other cool stuff. I'm actually, it's like kind of easy to say this. <laughs> it's like half silly, but half like very convenient. The U.S. has tons of other cool stuff. So removing the petrodollar would have some impact, but it really would not, not, you know, it's like, like you said, like 1% or whatever, not that big of a deal. So the question is, is why do we have the petrodollar in reality? Why do we have it? Why does it exist? Um, you know, it probably, it's, it's probably a, a carryover from gold standard thinking, honestly, I think, you know, it was that, um, you know, gold was this super important resource that everyone had to have. And we decided for simplicity to trade in dollars. And then after the gold standard fell, we said, okay, well, what if there was, you know, something else? And also this had to do with. So like the creation of OPEC, you know, we said, you know, this will be a lot easier for everyone else to deal with this really important good if we price it in dollars. Of course, you know, it was always an illusion. That was the argument. Why does it still exist other than ignorance? Because let's assume, let's assume that people know, or at least some people at the top, at the top have figured this out, that like obviously oil isn't the only good that you can buy with dollars. You know, it, it, it's, it sounds a bit conspiratorial, but I, I do think that it is currently in existence and people try to keep it this way because it's profitable for them. Either because, um, you know, you're a financial institution and you get money from the fact that people, you know, you're, you're an American financial institution who you know, does all this, all these transactions in dollars and you get like a little bit of the cut, you know, every time, you know, one of these transactions is made, it's either that, or perhaps more conspiratorially, if you are a, you know, a manufacturer of weapons and you're part of the uh, military industrial complex, you need the U S to be involved in conflict so you can sell bombs and missiles and guns and planes and tanks and all this sort of stuff. And the petrodollar is a convenient reason for mm-hmm. the US to An be involved to go to in war. these conflict. Yeah, pretty much. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you're yeah, I mean if, if you're the um uh the manufacturer of tanks, you want the US to have a need for tanks. You want them to be involved in some sort of conflict. So, huh. you know, if, if you hear that, well, we have the tanks, we might as well use them. Yeah. And if they use them, they get blown up and then the U S has to buy more. Huh. And you might, you might actually believe the petrodollar thing. You might think it's, it's over overblown. Cause it is, you, in fact, you probably know that it's overblown, but you will, you, you'll be incentivized to make it seem even bigger than it is. So we talked about, oh, it would be a small effect. If you manufacture tanks, you are incentivized to call the president of the United States and say, oh, no, 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 this is a huge thing. We have to make sure that um, people continue to trade oil and dollars. Otherwise, the economy will collapse. Oh, okay. and by so they're, the they're way, they're basically lying. They're basically lying. They're they're pretending that we have to, when really it's I really, really, really want you to do to keep this. Yeah, if you were if you were bad and smart, um, the current incentives, if you are a manufacturer of weapons, is to call the president and say, "We need to protect the petrodollar." Oh, and by the way, I have the weapons you need to do it. Mm-hmm. Give give me okay. money for these weapons so you can go do that. Okay. That makes sense. And I, I, I don't really, you know, I kind of reject the word conspiratorial. It's a theory. You know, we have no way to prove it, but it's certainly a theory and it's certainly worth considering looking into. And my theory, which I have no evidence for, but it just seems logical to make sense, which I've mentioned to you, is it is a very convenient way to basically keep tabs on every other country. 
because they have to use dollars. So there has to be some logs of which country has what. And that is obviously updated as they purchase oil and whatever, or they, and especially if they choose to not, you know, they try and create an alternative petrodollar or whatever, like go to the Euro or go to the ruble or whatever, that that is a very convenient way for the U S to keep tabs on every other country. Yes, because, you know, at some point for all those dollar payments to clear, there's going to be some movement within the Federal Reserve System. And it's easier for them to sort of track that. Also, it's easier for them to uh, put sanctions on countries. If you're... Hmm. like, like, Just flip the switch at the Fed. Interesting. Exactly. Um, If you have to spend dollars to buy oil and you're a country that you know pisses off the united states the u.s can tell you know even if you don't have a bank account with the united states so you know let's say you're you're um afghanistan you don't necessarily have a bank account at wells fargo but maybe you have an account at um you know deutsche bank in Germany, and they have a correspondent account with Wells Fargo, which is part of the Federal Reserve system, the Federal Reserve can tell Wells Fargo, do not process any of your, you know, correspondent account transactions from Deutsche Bank that are originated from Afghanistan. Mm. Yep. Yeah. That's true. Whereas if that weren't the case, and, you know, you and if, if Afghanistan was buying oil in Pakistani rupees, and then the only thing they would need permission for, the only entity they would need permission from would be the the Pakistani central bank, because they could have corresponding accounts with Pakistani commercial banks, and the U.S. wouldn't have direct influence over that. Mm -hmm. And some middle-aged white dude sitting at the Federal Reserve can just use a single finger to just change some, some, you know, number or some uh, Boolean in a you know true or false in, in their computer and cause this you know this real world consequence for whatever country they want. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean it's like that episode of, of Rick and Morty where they turn the one into a zero and then they sh- destroy the uh financial system. I am not familiar. Now I have to go now I'm curious about that. Okay. Um all right, so any final words about about the uh, petrodollar about your article um say it now and then let's let's switch over to the course yeah i mean you know the big takeaway for listeners and and i hope you uh go read the article yourself because there's a bunch of stuff that has has left out and there are some links to some uh other articles and and cool resources you know but the, the big takeaway is um you know consider this this cascade of of liabilities you know it starts with the state it moves to the individuals and, and companies. And then from there, it moves to consumers. And some of those consumers are outside of, of the country. And, you know, this, this network of, of connections uh, will only be as strong as the desire to save in whatever that currency is, which is dependent on how cool the stuff is that you can <laughs> buy with that currency. And people who haven't read the paper are going to be like, why do they keep saying cool stuff? It is, it is a tongue-in-cheek thing. Um, it, but it's really yeah, it's, convenient. It really is convenient to to, to say that. <laughs> and the countries yeah. who make the most cool stuff are cool countries. Exactly. exactly. And the, people, the countries who don't make any cool stuff are uncool countries. It, it's really easy <laughs> to remember and it's fun to say. And that was something that I sort of came up with after reading the deficit myth. of like, all right, she hmm. uses very accessible language. So why don't I just, you know make this accessible and sort of attention grabbing. I'm just going to call it's it like half stuff. embarrassing, but it really is half like really useful. <laughs> it's very useful to, to just encompass it with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. All right. So that's the end of that. Okay. So let's switch subjects drastically. Um, uh, you have been really helpful. Um, you uh, to give feedback on, you know, this course that we're creating, actually, why don't, why don't you, 
I can say generally. I, I guess I'll give the the lead up of how kind of I led to you, how how you got involved, and then you can you can take it from there. I'll just say briefly. Um, so you're my first interview, at least recorded. I'm probably going to release Professor Zaman and and uh, hopefully if it works out, Bill Mitchell um, to be the first interviews, and then I'll you know I'll supplement it with then I'll release you, and then I'll release Uzma. Um, so I interviewed Professor Zaman. I call him Professor Zaman. I'm sure he's never told me to say differently, so that's what I do. I, I called Randy Ray. I called him Dr. Ray. I call Bill Mitchell, Bill. I call, <laughs> I call Asad Zaman, Professor Zaman. So I don't know. I just get stuck on how I choose to call them, and I never change it because no one ever tells me to tell, say it differently. So I met Professor Zaman. I saw MMT, uh, his MMT videos, which is on the old version of the textbook, the pre-published version of the textbook. So he has a, a video per chapter, like 17 chapters. It's, and I don't know how I discovered them, but that I contacted him through that, and I did an interview with him in November of last year. It was released in November of last year. It's really good. It's really good. And in fact, the first hour is is significantly the content of our course, which is kind of interesting. I've been listening to it again. Today's part two of my three-part conversation with lawyer and independent economics researcher Jonathan Wilson on the reality of the petrodollar or reserve currency, focusing on his unique and easy-to-understand cool-stuff hypothesis. Jonathan's article on the topic can be found on his website pmpecon.com, and a link can also be found in the show notes. The Cool Stuff Hypothesis is a realistic look at how and why a country's currency is desired, spent, and saved by people both in and out of the country. The playful phrase, Cool Stuff, was inspired by Stephanie Kelton and her 2020 book, The Deficit Myth, 
which takes 25 years of MMT academic scholarship and boils it down for a popular non-academic audience. In part one, Jonathan summarized his hypothesis and today he continues that summary. We then connect the hypothesis to the ridiculous and hyperbolic theory of the petrodollar. In part three next week, we drastically change subjects. For the past nine months, Jonathan has assisted me in developing a full and free online course that's not directly MMT, but is critical for those who want to better understand it. It's based on the work of Asad Zaman, who is my guest in episodes 56 and 57, and is titled Historical Context for Real World Economics. The course is produced by activist MMT and hosted by Bill Mitchell's MMT Ed and Isha Krishnaswamy's Historically. But for now, let's get right back to part two of my conversation with Jonathan Wilson. Enjoy. <laughs> 